Welcome everyone to Monday Match Analysis. I'm Gil Gross. Two ATP 500 finals to break down on this week's show. And then uh, a preview of the Paris Masters 1000 Bercy. One last event until the next-gen finals, the ATP finals. The race is somewhat interesting. Right now, Andre Rublev in pole position to get that eighth and final spot. Uh, although, technically, it's Novak Djokovic. Um, but he's going to get in. He's right now 10th in the race. He won uh, a major, so he's going to get in. Right now, in pursuit is Hercotch and Fritz. But I want to start with last week's finals. Excellent tournaments. I felt... A lot of um, a lot of the best indoor hardcore players in the world right now ended up playing at the end of uh, last week's tournaments, and I do want to start with Vienna. Daniil Medvedev beating Denis Shapovalov in three sets. I don't normally do this, but I want to start with the loser. I think Denis Shapovalov left the biggest impression on me. From last week. If there's one player who kind of made me raise my eyebrows and uh, think long and hard about if I should be kind of making some reevaluations in my head, it was the tennis that Denis Shapovalov was playing, even in a losing effort in that final against Medvedev. To me, Shapo looks completely different. He's literally unrecognizable, and I mean that in the best possible way. There has clearly been an effort for him to cut down on the errors, and I think he's done two things to try to make that happen. On the technical side, there's a certain body control that he is playing with that uh, I don't even I, I don't even really feel like I knew what it looked like for Shapovalov to be in control of his body to this extent. Uh, to the point where I never really thought or discussed Shapovalov being wild and off balance with his technique. But once, you know, now that he's kind of fixed that and he's kind of rolled back those habits, it's so striking. Shapo just looks different out there with how balanced and in control he is. It starts with kind of keeping his head still, uh, controlling his follow-through, especially on the backhand side where he's just not getting quite as wild with it. And uh, there's a serenity and a calmness in his technique that is very noticeable right now. The second part of it is in his head when it comes to his decision-making and his shot selection, something that he has really, for a long time, tried to get a hold of and grapple with and improve. And I think it's been very, very hard for him to do so. Mikhail Yuzny tried very, very hard to get Shapovalov to start making good decisions. And man, it's been an uphill battle. Right now, Peter Polanski has come on. There is a short Jamie Delgado stint this year. The coaching has not been consistent with Shapo, but it seems like Polanski has kind of gotten to him. When it comes to the, the decision-making part, he's just playing with way more discipline. I've never seen him play with so much discipline in my life. The decisions are good ones. He's not overpressing. He's not overhitting. He's in control of his body. He's in control of his mind. And he's making less unforced errors. He didn't lose that match against Neil Medvedev because he was spraying his ground strokes wildly. He lost it for some other reasons. I'll get to him in a moment. Um, I also thought he was especially dialed in 
on his backhand. And I liked that. For me, it looked like his mentality was, look, I am going to mostly trade cross-court on my backhand. The forehand is the moneymaker for me. And I don't want to lose a match because I'm missing on my backhand. I would rather live and die by the forehand. So he was pretty patient on that backhand. A little bit more aggressive on the forehand. And I like that. I think that's how it should be. Now, I do want to emphasize that Denis Shapovalov did not turn into a defensive player. He did not turn into a passive player. That would be bad. That would be a waste of the offensive talent that he possesses. And it would go against his DNA. It would take away what makes him special as a player. He shouldn't do that. He didn't do that. Just because he was disciplined, just because he was patient, just because he took certain measures to cut down the unforced errors, it didn't mean that he wasn't aggressive and offensive. He still was, but uh, he did it in a certain way against Neil Medvedev, which is that when he was in finish mode, he did not try to blast his way past and through Daniil Medvedev off the ground. He hit controlled approach shots and he trusted his volleys. He's a really good volleyer. He's a pretty good doubles player. Played a lot of doubles. I don't think his record is great, actually. But uh, I like his volleys. Got good hands, good technique, moves well at net. So the way he was attacking short balls was uh, the most responsible way he can attack short balls, which is hit controlled approach shots. And he just wasn't trying to blast through Medvedev because players who try to do that make errors. It doesn't work. He's too good defensively. So I really loved Shapovalov. Um, I loved what I saw from him all week. And despite him losing this final, um, you remember a couple weeks back when he made the final in Seoul. I, uh, I was impressed with his form there. And on my show, I said, wow, that, that looked pretty interesting. I don't know if that is the new Dennis because that was just one week. So I'm just going to continue to monitor this, continue to watch this. Has Shapovalov gotten consistent? Has that happened? Has he really managed to sustainably cut down the errors? And after Seoul, Tokyo, he makes the semifinals. He beats Borna Chorich. Good win. Uh, Stockholm, a bit of a bump in the road. Losing, loses to Alex Di Minor, who just owns him. Terrible head-to-head. And then here in Vienna, he makes the final. He beats Taylor Fritz. He beats Dan Evans. He beats Borna Chorich again. Loses to Medvedev in the final. I thought he played a good match. Brilliant first set, which he won 6-4. But Medvedev won the next two sets, 6-3, Let's get into why Shapovalov wasn't able to go all the way and hold the trophy at the end. And I I should add, it's frustrating. It's very frustrating for Shapovalov fans because um, he's just lost a lot of finals and semifinals in his career. Uh, What is it now? Um, I mean... He, he hasn't won since Stockholm, which is his only title. I, I mean, he did have the ATP Cup. That doesn't count as a title, obviously, but he did have that. I just want to throw that out there. But um, yeah, tough record in finals. What is he tour level finals? Let me check that real quick. Level ATP. Um, he is one in five now. So yeah, that's Stockholm. Obviously, it's been the semifinal, which is you know, previously was the hurdle for Chapo until he made that final of Stockholm. And since then, he's lost a bunch of finals. All right, why did Medvedev win? I think the biggest difference here was uh, 
he he was able to kind of keep Shapo away from the net. And once he was able to keep Shapo away from the net and kind of uh, keep him at bay and pin him back, and they're getting into a lot of baseline rallies, even though Shapovalov was well-suited to handle them better than maybe he ordinarily would, it's still advantage Medvedev there. Medvedev outserved Shapovalov, you know, really solidly in this match. Uh, but in the second and the third sets, the big difference with Shapovalov wasn't getting the net. And I think one of the big reasons why, there's a couple of them. First thing, Medvedev's backhand really started to shut down everything that Shapovalov was really trying to do. Uh, I mentioned that Shapo was pretty passive on his backhand. He was trying to create offense with his forehand. And mainly the combination that Shapo is looking for was, uh, you know, to go aggressive cross-court on the forehand and then, you know, find the short ball and then take the forehand down the line and approach off of that. Uh, but Medvedev's backhand, it, it's so difficult to make any progress on it. Uh, that's why when I did the Hulk episode a week ago, Medvedev was my backhand defense guy. Because you just can't, you know, it's not even that he, you know, scrambles well with his backhand and makes extra balls on his backhand. It's like you just can't get a short ball going to Medvedev's backhand. And for Shapovalov, you know, the lefty, that cross-court forehand, uh, heavy topspin, you know, he, he hits a very heavy cross-court forehand. Uh, Medvedev just didn't care. And in the second and the third set, uh, he was taking that backhand pretty early. He was kind of roping it down the line. He was hitting it deep cross-court, and Shapovalov just couldn't create any offense off of his cross-court forehand. I thought that was a big factor. Just wasn't getting the short balls. Um, in the third set, Medvedev started passing like a wizard. You know, uh, there wasn't much Shapovalov can do. Maybe there was just a little bit of quality lacking in some of the approach shots, a little bit too tame. I don't know. Uh, it's hard for me to criticize him both ways because at the end of the day, Shapovalov wasn't missing, and that's a good thing. Uh, but ultimately, you know, Medvedev just started to dial in on the passing shots, and uh, I didn't think there was much Dennis could do in that third set. Uh, but, you know, the critiques for Shapovalov, yeah, he didn't make first serves. It was a bad serving performance for Shapo, and that's going to contribute to, you know, him having to play more of those neutral baseline rallies with Medvedev because he can't take control behind his first serve. Uh, Shapovalov only made 51% of his first serves for the match. He won 78% of his first serves, which is awesome against Medvedev. You know, it tells you that when Shapo was getting something to attack, he was actually playing really well and doing a great job of capitalizing off of that. Just wasn't getting anything to attack because he wasn't making his first serves and his cross-court forehand wasn't getting him anywhere. Um, and then, you know, I, I don't think he was serving volleying enough. That's another critique. I thought it was very effective in the first set. He seemed to go away from it. I didn't get that. And then lastly, he just couldn't execute on the drop shot. To Shapo's credit, he stopped hitting the drop shot when it wasn't working. But, you know, it can be a nice play against Medvedev when you, you know, use it sparingly and you don't telegraph it. But Shapo's drop shots were just heavy-handed, too deep in the court, and he kept getting burnt on it. So no serve volley, no drop shot, bad serving, eh, not really going to cut it. Medvedev, great defense, very solid from the back of the court. Medvedev served well, and, uh, and he wins this. But let me give you the, the net stats here. Shapovalov was 16 of 19 in the first set at net. So, you know, it was really a, a huge reason why he won the first set. And then in the second set, well, the percentage was good. 
but he didn't get up there much. He was eight for 11 in the second set. And then in the third set, not only did he not get there much, but he didn't win when he got there and he was four of 10. So six of 19, eight of 11, four of 10. Constant decline in Shapovalov's success at net. So that match started to be played from uh, the baseline. Um, Shapo played two loose service games, you know, with errors. And then Medvedev went God mode on a return game in the third to, uh, to get that double break. And as I said, Medvedev was serving really well. So there you have it. Uh, second title of the year for Daniil Medvedev. And uh, he looks back. You know, I said it in Astana. I'll say it again now. Medvedev looks like, you know, 2021 Daniil Medvedev. FAA in Basel. He wins it. Third straight title. He's got the hat trick. I was very disappointed that in Basel, nobody threw their hat onto the court. If I were there, I would have thrown my hat. Felix, being from Montreal, would have really appreciated that. He, he knows the deal. When, when you score a hat trick, throw your hat. Throw the damn hat. So I thought that was a miss by that Basel crowd. Uh, but yeah, it's super rare that someone is able to win three titles in three we weeks. It's just, it's damn hard. Murray did it in 2011. Rude did it last year. Uh, but for Felix, it's a 13-match win streak. I think one of the most notable things I can say about Felix is 4-1 and one in finals in 2022 after losing his first seven career finals. 4-1. and one. So, yeah, the finals, you know, that, that finals thing, it's kind of irrelevant. And look, all of these finals are an indoor hardcourt. I'm not going to belabor that point. I've already talked about it. Um, but I think next time he's in a final, is he even going to really be thinking about, you know, is there going to be any baggage, any scar tissue that even exists anymore? I don't think so. I think he's completely gotten through that. So that's huge. In terms of Felix's win, uh, 6-3, 7-5 over Holger Runa. And by the way, you know, um, some people are calling him Rune. Some people are calling him Runa. If you are... Um, if you are from Denmark and you want to weigh in on how an English speaker should say his name, uh, I did speak to a Swedish friend of mine. He told me Runa. So if you want to weigh in on that in the comments, go ahead. And I will, uh, I always take those things in, into consideration. Um, I'm going to go with Runa. I think that's, I think that's correct right now. So, um, look, FAA, and I will get to Holger, FAA has reached like Berrettini levels of serve plus one play. It's absolutely insane what he's doing. The, uh, you know, Runa actually did better than anyone else all week in Basel in winning first serve points against Felix. All right, I'm going to read you the percentages here. Uh, first serve points won all week for Felix. 89%, uh, 92% against Ketsmanovic, 88% versus Bublik, 82% versus Alcaraz. And then finally, Runa gets him under that 80% mark. And uh, Felix wins, or sorry, uh, yeah, yeah, Felix wins 78% of his first serve points against Holger Runa. So nobody did better. Nobody did better than Holger Runa. But did he do well? Not really. No. FAA's serve plus one still was uh, just kind of unplayable. And let me break down what this looked like statistically. And it comes down to precision. It comes down to just how well his spot, you know, how good his spot serving is. 
He averaged 126 miles per hour on his first serve, but he's just pinpoint accurate. And then on that next forehand, he takes it early. He doesn't need time to generate power because of his compact stroke production. Uh, So he takes it super early. He hits it really hard, but same with his serve. He's just deadly accurate, and it's super hard to read where he's going with his forehand when he hits it from an open stance. He's got a Federer quality about him. It's a somewhat wristy forehand, but he kind of holds it till the last second, and I don't think anybody can read where it's going. So let me break this down. 61 total points in this match by Felix on serve. 61 points. 23 of those points were unreturned serves. Runa didn't get it back. So that's 38%. Okay, that's 23 of 61, 38%. Now, plus one finishes. Either Felix hit a winner on the plus one, or uh, Felix forced an error, so Runa missed the fourth shot of the rally. 14 times that happened. That's 23%. So you add that up, 14 plus one finishes, 23 unreturnables, and you divide it by how many total serve points there was, 61. You get to 61%. 61% of Felix's serve points. Not the ones he won, just the total points were one on the serve plus one. That means... I need to emphasize how crazy this is. That means that Felix could have played the match with a stipulation. Stipulation that... He's only allowed to swing the racket twice. Serve, you get one shot, and then you need to drop the racket. You're not allowed to play. He still would have won the majority of his service points. What? I don't know how many players can compare to Felix right now on the serve plus one. Uh, Rude maybe on clay. Nadal on clay, or Nadal in general because of how good his forehand is. Uh, Novak serve plus one is at this point underrated. Berrettini, I think definitely. Berrettini is probably the only guy who, like Felix, probably has a top 10 first serve and a top 10 forehand. I don't know if anybody else in the world has, you know, can, can say that. Although, you know, it's certainly debatable. So I'm not saying that definitively. But Felix is right there. Uh, but if there's one thing that surprised me in this match, it's how good Felix's backhand was. In, uh, in both games, Felix broke. He hit these really awesome uh, backhands down the line where... You know, Runa really ripped uh, a backhand cross court with a lot of pace, but he couldn't really recover to the middle because he hit a rocket. And Felix just, with a, you know, redirection from Mars on the down the line. One was a winner. One, you know, was virtually a winner, not quite. And interestingly enough, Runa had issues with his own backhand in both of those games. Each set was one break a serve. Um, and, you know, Felix... It was, it was a lot of backhand and backhand stuff that I saw in both of those games. That's surprising because, you know, I think generally speaking, you'd, you'd think Runa would have the advantage there. Not the case in this match. Uh, let's give some love, though, to Holger, uh, who is also on an absolute tear. He's made finals in the last three tournaments he's played, Sofia, Stockholm, and Basel. If you ask me about Runa before this run, I'd say there are two concerns with him. Uh, the first thing is the serving, and he's he's completely transformed that. You know, he averaged 124 miles per hour on his first serve, pretty crazy good. Not a pinpoint spot serving, but server. But if you're hitting it 
like want if you're hitting at mid 120s like you're going to get a, you're going to get away with that wow i can't speak um so the serve is huge and by the way the second serve average was 110 miles per hour which is a joke that's about as good as you'll see from anyone so the serve looks really good and then the second issue that i would have brought up if you ask me about runa after the us open i would have said that cramping thing is not necessarily gone because there were some incidents over the course of the clay court season and if my memory serves winston salem was also a little bit shaky on the cramping front i, I think there was an incident there as well um now i did speak to some someone on um runa's team and he told me that the cramping issue has been solved it's all good now and i know that holger has been working with someone full time to try to remedy that issue and i feel like what he did in stockholm kind of puts that to rest when he won in munich when he won his first career title he blew the brakes off of everybody every single match was quick Nobody could even blow a candle to him. Hold a candle to him. Let me get that right. Hold a candle. So it didn't really show anything about his endurance. But in Stockholm, he wins a three-setter against Cam Nori, who always makes you work hard, two hours, six minutes. And then he wins two hours, 50 minutes against Alex Dimonor. And then he recovers for the final and beats Tsitsipas in straight sets. All right, I'm sold. If your team is telling me cramps are a non-issue now and you're doing that, all right, I'm sold. The cramps have been sorted. That's what it looks like, at least. It's still something to monitor. Um, and, you know, we all know off the ground, he's kind of in that, he's kind of in that center Alcaraz vein. He's got huge power off of both wings and just has a, you know, he's a great modern ball striker, awesome racket speed, super strong, uh, good movement. So uh, Runa also heck of a run from him, uh, but it didn't feel like he could do much against Felix in this match on return, especially because FAA has just been that good on the serve plus one. Paris preview. Let's do it. Here's your thumbnail. Um, I, I love this center court in Bercy, but I hate it on TV because the court looks like a square and I'm sorry if I've ruined the viewing experience for you by pointing that out. But next time you watch Paris on TV, look how the court is distorted and looks like a square instead of a rectangle. All right. Carlos Alcaraz's quarter. No, let me give you some words. Um, first, uh, Paris often feels like. A Masters 1000 that can get a little bit wacky, wild, crazy results. We've seen, you know, it's the only Masters 1000 that David Ferrer has won, for example. Um, it is the only Masters that Jack Sock has won. Um, Philip Krajinovic, right? Am I getting that? Let me let me just look at the, the recent champions here. Uh, I believe... Philip Krajinovic was in a final, right? Let's check this out. And I think the reason for that is motivation. As I've kind of discussed, 
Why can't I pull this up? All right, we might, we might just punt on this. Anyway, motivation is all over the place because the season is almost over. And if you are not one of the few players who are vying for one of those final eight spots um, in the, in the year-end championships, then you are likely hurt, you are likely tired, uh, and you have one more left, and your state of mind is questionable at this point. So I think that's why we've seen some weird stuff, which is why I, I think you know younger players have often done well. I think some of the veterans are checked out. Some of the top players are often checked out. This actually feels a little bit different this year. It feels like Novak has something to prove. It feels like Alcaraz is young and has something to prove. Um, it feels like Tsitsipas has something to prove. Medvedev has something to prove, hasn't had a great year. Uh, it just feels very different for a lot of these top players who, uh, you know, yeah, they just, there's been adversity. There's been a lack of tennis. They're more well-rested than usual, and they should be more motivated than usual. So I don't know that this is going to be uh, a very, you know, upset, upset-filled Paris Masters as far as the top men are concerned. I actually like the prospects coming in of, uh, of quite a few of them, in fact. Another thing to keep your eye on when it comes to conditions, this is generally, uh, or historically, it's played like kind of like a dead court. Uh, the ball doesn't bounce very high and it's not fast. So it's kind of been like a, a dead bounce, so to speak. All right, by the way, I pulled it up. So yeah, Krajinovic was in that final against Sock in a very wacko 2017 Paris Masters. Uh, Karen Hatchinov, Karen Hatchinov in 2018. That was weird. He's been to one final since. That was weird. Recently hasn't been very weird though. Medvedev, two straight finals. Djokovic, two titles in the last three years, three finals in the last four years. Novak's actually dominated this event recently. Um, yeah, let's see. One, no, one, two, three, four, five, six Paris titles for Djokovic. All right, anyway, uh, yeah, slow, low bouncing. That's traditionally how it plays. Seems like uh, we might get a change this year which puts me in a tough position trying to predict this tournament because the tournament director said it's going to play faster this year. And uh, that was a tweet that I saw from our friend Ali, who you'll often see in the comment section. Been uh, watching the show for a very long time. Appreciate him. Um, good Twitter account too that you should follow. I think, uh, I, I don't know what it is exactly, but Ali. Ali2022? I don't know. Um, so yeah, it might be playing faster this year. I don't know, something to keep in the back of the mind. So, um, but I don't really know because I haven't seen it. And a lot of the times one person says one thing about the court speed and not always, not always gospel. I can say that. All right, without further ado, let's go to Carlos Alcaraz's quarter. He is the number one seed. You remember last year in Paris, um, he blew that five, I think it was a five love lead, five love 40, 15, something crazy against Hugo Gaston and went absolute meltdown mode and lost that match. So Alcaraz is the top seed. Andre Rublev, Hubert Hurkacz, and Matteo Berrettini are the other top seeds in, or the other seeds, I should say, in this quarter. Alcaraz is with uh, Berrettini. Rublev and Hurkacz are 
in a uh, section together. My dark horse here is Holger Runa. Got to give him that respect for the form that he's been in and as an unseated player in this section. Again, it's kind of a it's kind of a shoe-in, no-brainer that you make him the dark horse. He, um, in the first round, will play Stan Wawrinka, who's using his protected ranking here. And the winner will get Hercotch versus Manorino. Um, my upset alert here is Matteo Berrettini. Berrettini, there have been a lot of reports coming out that Berrettini might withdraw, that he's not healthy. In fact, I do believe that some media outlets have reported that he did withdraw, but I still see him in the draw. So um, I don't know exactly what's going on with Berrettini, but I will say this. He is winless in his career in Paris. He is generally not very good on best of three on hard courts. It's just, he's like a 500 player for his career, best of three on hard courts. So I'm always a little bit dubious in these kinds of events, Masters 1000s included. And uh, there are lots of reports that he's not healthy. So clear upset alert here is Matteo Berrettini, which uh, would sort of open up uh, Carlos Alcaraz's section of the draw. Berrettini is slated to play um, Arthur Fields qualifier from France, who I've actually never seen play which is very rare in a Masters 1000 draw that there's someone who I have not seen play. That's really rare. But yeah, Arthur Fields, haven't seen him. All right, uh, early popcorn, Runa versus Vavrinka. Hey, Vavrinka in the first round, Vavrinka against a top player, you don't want that. I don't think Stan has the physicality to go deep in tournaments anymore for the most part, but you look at his October, uh, Vavrinka has beaten Medvedev and he's beaten Rude. He's got two top five wins in October. So uh, it's an interesting first round matchup for Holger Runa. And obviously we'll be seeing Runa's fatigue levels, how he's holding up as he's played um, not quite Felix levels. Not quite Felix because I think it's been, it's been three tournaments in four weeks. I don't think it's been three and three. But still, especially a player with the history of some physical issues, that's one to watch. My quarterfinal here is Hercotch defeats Alcaraz. Hercotch made the semifinals here in Paris last year. He serves well in the still indoor conditions. And this is a hard court Masters 1000 tournament. Hubert Hercotch has torn up hard court Masters in his career, like clockwork. And I think these big servers in fast conditions have made Carlos Alcaraz pretty uncomfortable in general. Alcaraz uh, is great at breaking serve. He's great at winning return points because his returns are often so aggressive and he's so good at defending behind his return. He's so good at winning baseline rallies behind his return. But the one area where I'm not that high on Alcaraz is um, against mega servers in quick conditions when it comes to just, you know, getting returns in play. So uh, I think that Hercotch could bother Alcaraz in these kinds of conditions. And, um, you know, Alcaraz, I'm pretty high on him in general right now. I think he's recovered from, from the U.S. Open. I think the hangover is over. But uh, Hubie also kind of vying for that last year-end championship spot uh, which he has experience of doing. He did it last year. 
Uh, certainly, there will be no lack of motivation on the Hercotch side of things. Now, the one wrench that you have to throw in this before I move on to the next quarter, both Rublev and Hercotch have these nightmarish matchups, uh, potentially in the first round. Uh, Hercotch plays Manorino first round. Manorino completely confounded him at the, at the Australian Open in January. And uh, I don't think it's comfortable for Hercotch. I don't think that that was a coincidence. I think that uh, the lack of pace on Manorino's ball really bothers Hercotch. So that's almost an upset alert right there, even though I have him moving through to the semifinals. You know, Manorino hasn't looked great, so I'm just kind of trusting Hercotch to figure that one out and get through it. But mm, that's, that's one to watch. And then for Andre Rublev, who I, I genuinely thought about putting to, through to the quarterfinals. I really did think about that. I thought about having Rublev beating Hercotch and then Alcaraz beating Rublev. Those were my two scenarios here. Um, watch out for Rublev and John Isner. That might be a second round match. Rublev getting the bye. Isner 3-0 against Andre Rublev. Rublev um, has never played well at the Paris Masters in his career, which is ultimately a big reason why I didn't put him through to the quarterfinals, and I put Hercotch instead. Um, now with Isner, you have question marks. Hasn't played since he had to withdraw with the, uh, I believe it was a wrist injury at the U.S. Open. So who knows what John Isner we're getting, but Rublev Isner, that's an interesting one. Not a very comfortable matchup for Andre Rublev. Let's move on to Daniil Medvedev's quarter. The top seeds are Medvedev, FAA, Taylor Fritz, Francis Tiafo. This is almost a Team World quarter. Medvedev ruins it with the Team Europe, but uh, that's almost like a Labor Cup Team World quarter right here. Um, Medvedev, the defending finalist. My dark horses here, there's two of them. Jack Draper and Michael Emer. Draper has that profile of kind of that younger breakout player, uh, very good on indoor hardcourt. Uh, from what I've seen. That's the kind of player from a motivation standpoint I really like at the Paris Masters. And he impressed me last week against Carlos Alcaraz. Mike Lemer has been a really, really tough out ever since the U.S. Open. Uh, he is just defending his rear end off. Super hard to hit through him. Uh, for some reason, loving the indoor hard. Not really something that I would predict. Then again, grew up in Sweden. I imagine he played quite a bit on the indoor hard courts, and that's probably why. Uh, so those are my dark horses. My upset alert is Francis Tiafo. Uh, Tiafo for his career, one and three in Paris. He's had two tough matches in a row, a uh, couple of losses, and he's a momentum player. And I just feel like he's lost some mojo. Uh, I think that the whole North American hard court season. Probably took a lot out of Francis Tiafo and his draw. Um, it is qualifier Lorenzo Sinego in the first round, who's really good on indoor hard, who has felt these conditions. He's won a pair of matches. And that's why Tiafo is upset alert to play the winner of Draper versus Rinderk Netsch. Uh, my popcorn match here is Andy Murray versus Gilles Simone. Uh, this has actually nothing to do with tennis, and it has nothing to do with Andy Murray, 
who I continue to pledge will not always be the popcorn match. And time and time again, every single tournament is the popcorn match. But this one's about Gilles Simone. He is going to retire. This is his last professional tournament as far as I know. I know he's retiring at the end of the season. I am assuming that this is the end of his season. Um, and this would be a, obviously a great way to go out in his home country. I hope he gets plenty of fanfare. Uh, he had that great run at Roland Garros, which was special. It was fantastic. Uh, 20 years on tour for Gilou. Fantastic career. Fascinating player. I will miss him. Congratulations to Gilles Simone. With that, I reveal my quarterfinal in Daniil Medvedev's quarter. It is Medvedev defeats... FAA. I think Daniil Medvedev is back. I continue to say that. He's proven that he can play a lot of tennis and withstand the physical and mental demands. You know, throughout the year, there have been some occasions where I have been at fault by, you know, picking players coming off of a deep run at the previous tournament. Uh, one example of that was like Indian Wells to like. Indian Wells to Miami, Miami to Monte Carlo. I, I made a couple of mistakes on my predictions because I, I didn't, I was too high on players who were good the previous week. Medvedev's that guy who's just shown that he can do it. You know, he can go week to week to week and maintain his level, um, the physical and mental demands. He can do it. Um, and I think in general, he came into this part of the season pretty well rested. For FAA, you could say, well, why do you ha have him going through to the quarters? I like his draw. The buy should help a lot. Uh, but at the end of the day, I actually think he's a tough matchup on Medvedev. The reason I have Medvedev coming through in this quarterfinal is because I think that he can withstand the rigors of this, you know, physically uh, better than Felix. And by the way, Medvedev hasn't played three weeks in a row like Felix has. So... Um, Look, there's certainly a concern that Felix has played too much tennis, but he's played plenty of quick matches, and he's just looked unstoppable. So uh, I could not pick him to lose before this quarterfinal. Uh, Fritz is in his section, you know, but there's not a lot of depth other than Fritz, I will say. Uh, obviously, Emer, my dark horse, that could be, like, he's going to have to play a ton of balls if they play. Um, Emer's going to make returns. He's going to run a lot, but... There's nobody who I was ready to pick an upset over Felix. And that includes Taylor Fritz, who I like. Uh, Fritz is going to have to try to go deep here. If he wants to make the year-end championships, he'll also need Rublev to lose early. Same goes for Hercotch, by the way. I don't really see it happening. So Medvedev over FAA. We move on to Kasper Ruud's quarter. Top seeds are Kasper Ruud, Novak Djokovic, Yannick Sinner, and Marin Cilic. My dark horse in this quarter, two of them, Lorenzo Musetti and Marc-Andrea Hussler. I was super, super impressed with Musetti on the indoor hard courts in Italy, Florence, and Naples. I thought he just looked outstanding with the intensity of his ground strokes, um, just how big he was hitting off of the ground, confident. Uh, good, good focus mentally, and for some reason he's had a lot of a you know a big scheduling emphasis on indoor hard courts. You know one thing that that you should have noticed about Musetti 
is he didn't play the golden swing this year on the South American clay courts. He stayed inside. He played Rotterdam. He said, I want to work on my game on these quicker, you know, hard court surfaces. And I think it's important that I get my reps in these conditions. So this is where it pays off. I think he's hungry, another young player and, um, Indoor tennis has been his jam. Hamburg, by the way, plays very close to kind of indoorsy conditions too. He he can play very precise, especially on his backhand, and he knows how to win a baseline rally right now. I'll tell you that. Uh, Mark Andre Mark Andrea Husler, shout out to the Sofia champion who came through qualifying in this event and will play Yannick Sinner, who comes in with some health questions. You know, I could have put Sinner on upset alert. There's only one reason I didn't put Sinner on upset alert against Hussler in the first round. And that is because Sinner never gets upset in 2022. He just doesn't. He loses to good players. He doesn't lose to players ranked lower than him. So I couldn't put him on upset alert. My upset alert is Casper Look, I know the surface is quicker, but I don't know if it's higher bouncing and low bouncing courts just kill rude like we've seen it on the grass we've seen how much that has hurt his game and you know it, it kills his forehand it hurts his backhand too if this is going to play like paris usually plays rude isn't going to have a lot of fun plus since the u.s open in regular tournaments casper rude is one in three my popcorn match here is Lorenzo Musetti versus Marin Cilic. I'm expecting a high level here. It's a great contrast of styles as Cilic will be looking to take the ball early, hit big, come forward. Uh, I expect Musetti to take somewhat of a counter-punching role in this match, and it's going to be very intriguing to see how Musetti does with big hitting Cilic in still conditions. Cilic is excellent on an indoor hard court, but as you know, I'm high on Musetti. I do believe Musetti is going to come through that matchup, and I have Musetti going all the way to the quarterfinal because I don't really trust Yannick Sinner in that section of the draw. And ultimately, I have Novak Djokovic in a rematch of that Roland Garros round of 16 match, beating Lorenzo Musetti and moving through to the semis. Let's go to our last quarter. The number two seed, the return of Rafa Nadal since Labor Cup. I guess it hasn't been that long, has it? Top seeds are Rafa, Stefano Tsitsipas, Cam Nori, and Pablo Carreño Busta. I guess I should congratulate Rafa Nadal on his fatherhood. There's a couple of other uh, players who, who, had, uh, who had babies. Gael Monfils, congratulations to him. Congratulations to Alina Svitolina. And there's one more which I forgot. A lot of babies on tour in October. A lot of babies. All right, my dark horse is Denis Shapovalov here. This is, a, this is another layup, but you know, the funny thing is I originally did this preview on Friday. I already had Shapovalov penciled in as my dark horse uh, because of the way he was playing, yes, but also, um, you know, the slower indoor hard courts, still conditions where Shapo can, you know, really swing out with a little bit more reckless abandon in the still conditions. That's great for Chapo. He serves better. Uh, his tossing issues, which he sometimes has, not as bad indoors. And uh, he just looked very motivated, fresh. And I don't know if he's going to be fresh anymore. That's kind of the question. But uh, he's easily my dark horse here. 
My upset alert is Cameron Nori. Oh, by the way, Chapeau, last time he played Paris, 2019, made the finals. Cam Nori is upset alert. Doesn't look right right now. This is just a form thing. He's out of contention for the finals. There's really nothing for him to play for. He's probably ready for the offseason. Nothing really comes easily to Cam Nori. So if he's not going to be completely locked in and fight like an animal like he usually does, he's not going to be very good. Popcorn match. I didn't really like any of the first round matchups. So I'm like, you know what? Nadal. The return of Nadal. First match as a father. I believe it'll be on Wednesday. And guess what? It's not going to be an easy one. Tommy Paul. Tommy Paul can ball. Tommy Paul is excellent on an indoor hardcore. Tommy Paul has a great backhand. RBA, same thing. RBA makes you work. RBA never misses his backhand. Not quite as, you know, big and imposing, but never misses. And um, yeah, also a great, RBA is extra challenging on a low bouncing hardcore. Rafa, again, this court doesn't really bounce traditionally. And that's why Rafa has not been good in Paris. Let me uh, pull up Nadal's record in Paris, shall we? I'll pull that up, but I will also um, reveal my quarterfinal before we get to that. Quarterfinal here. Denis Shapovalov defeats Stefano Tsitsipas. That's right. I think Shapo keeps it going. I know I just went on a tangent about how I shouldn't pick players to always do well after doing well the week prior because they're going to get tired and they're going to lose, but I couldn't resist. Great matchups here for Dennis. And yes, that includes Rafa. That's a good matchup for Dennis Shapovalov. So let us start there. Shapovalov uh, versus Nadal. Three straight matches now have been there for the taking for Shapo. And on a couple of occasions, the mental game, which is not always great for Dennis, has gotten in the way of him beating Rafa Nadal. Uh, but you look at Rome 2021, third set tiebreak. Shapovalov had match points. Australian Open this January. Shapo should have won that match. Shapo was, um, you know, won the third set, won the fourth set. Nadal was looking awful in the fifth, and Shapovalov blew it. I don't know how else to put it. Nadal also fights like the greatest warrior that we have ever seen. So I don't want to give him no credit. Um, and then Rome. Shapo finally gets it done. This year's Rome. He beats him. I know Nadal was injured. Nadal looked terrible physically in that third set, which he lost 6-2. Uh, but this is, a, this is a really good matchup for Dennis because um, unlike the matchup against Medvedev where he attacks with his cross-court forehand into Medvedev's backhand and he can never get a short ball, he can never get anything to attack, uh, that's actually not the case. When you go hard and heavy and you, you hit with a lot of quality into Nadal's forehand wing, uh, Rafa can actually sometimes drop the ball short and Dennis can uh, attack. Plus, you know, Rafa doesn't have, you know, that, that, you know, when he usually goes to the righty backhand and kind of attacks the ad court to find his short ball, he's going in the Shapo ball of forehand. So it's a good matchup for Shapo. Tsitsipas, also a good matchup for Shapo. Are you kidding me? The way that 
Dennis is attacking the ad court right now with his serve off the ground. You're telling me that Tsitsipas's backhand is going to hold up against that. I don't think so. So I'm putting him through. Look, Tsitsipas, love him on indoor, indoor hard. Like Tsitsipas a lot better on indoor hard court than I do on outdoor hard court. It just comes down to precision. Spot serving and hitting that plus one forehand with precision. And Tsitsipas does that really well indoors. That's why basically all of his finals and titles, actually, not basically, all of his titles and finals are, um, not finals, titles, okay, titles, are on indoor hardcourt, never done it on outdoor hardcourt. So Tsitsipas loses in the quarterfinal here to Denis Shapovalov. All right, let's go to the final weekend. Also, though, I shouldn't just say, you know, matchup, matchup, matchup. Uh, we don't know, you know, Nadal. Uh, Nadal hasn't looked himself in a while. Let's see how he looks. Hasn't played since uh, the U.S. Open. Hasn't played singles, at least since the U.S. Open. So, you know, I'm just kind of, it's a wait and see. Uh, but Shapovalov, with the way he's playing, it's not going to be easy. And obviously, as I mentioned, that first match isn't going to be easy for Nadal either. All right, final weekend. Medvedev defeats Horkacz three sets. Traditionally, this has been a really tough matchup for Medvedev, um, but I don't know. I'm putting him through. That's it. I have no reasoning. Djokovic defeats Shapovalov two sets. Um, yeah, that's a terrible matchup for Shapo. We've seen that matchup actually a lot. Rematch of the Wimbledon semifinals of last year, but uh, similar to what Medvedev did to Shapovalov in that final, just shutting Dennis down keeping him pinned to the baseline, not giving him anything to attack. Novak tends to do the same thing, Djokovic in two. Uh, and then, you know, I have the same final that we saw last year, Djokovic-Medvedev. And um, the extra court speed that allegedly we are about to see in Paris should help Novak kind of keep that match a little bit less physical, more offense, gets to the net more uses the serve and volley with more effectiveness. And Novak is the fresher player. And that's a big deal to me. You know, the fact that Medvedev went deep last week, um, so did Shapovalov, obviously. I like Djokovic off of rest. And let me just say, how good did Novak look in Astana? Come on now. That was a, that was a ridiculous level in Astana. So... I'm riding that, and the man who has won uh, six Paris Masters titles, I think he's in an awesome position to make it number seven. That's it for Monday Match Analysis. I will have coverage of the Paris Masters, as well as maybe some stuff from the WTA Finals in Fort Worth next week. Hope you enjoyed. Don't forget to subscribe. I'll see you next time.